If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 18 this morning. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 18. There's a soccer tournament going on today. We normally have a mass exodus, and we still had a mass exodus because we're still overwhelmingly outnumbered by kiddos, but I know quite a few families are participating in soccer tournaments and, and different things of that nature. So pray that nobody gets injured and safe travels for those who are out of town and traveling for soccer tournaments. We're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are now entrenched in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus has called his disciples, specifically his 12 apostles, to him, and he has decided that it is time for them to learn what it means to be a disciple. And a part of this instruction process is a hands-on learn-as-you-go experience in which he sends them out, specifically charging them with the mission of preaching the kingdom. Now, he makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 10. He says in verse uh, 5, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're in Galilee. They're in northern Israel. South of them is Samaria. To the west of them, along the Mediterranean, the, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, to the west of Galilee, there is Tyre and Sidon. These are Gentile regions. And so primarily what Christ is instructing them to do is to limit, to restrict their activities specifically to the regions immediately surrounding Galilee. So this is a short-term mission trip. Along with that, he gives them certain instructions regarding not taking any provisions for the journey, not taking a staff and extra clothing, food, things of this nature. But you see here, we're going to read this in just a second, you see here today that even though he's only sending them out on a short-term mission trip, the lessons and the principles that they are learning in this short-term mission trip are going to be applicable to the totality of the rest of their lives. Not only for these 12, but for you and me as well, for the rest of the church. And so I'd like to pick it up. We're going to just read verses 5 to 15 to remind us where we've been, and then I will read verses 16 to 18, where we're going to be focusing at this morning. So in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, these 12, the 12 apostles, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we we thank you so much, Lord, for giving us this instruction through your Son. Lord, I, I fear that sometimes our perspective on this world is that it is a place of comfort and leisure and luxury. That it's a place where we ought to be making our homes. Father, there's no way to be your disciple and then to fight, accept at face value this instruction that you give us today and still cling to the notion that this home, this world that we live in is our final resting place. I pray, Lord, that you would strip us of all false assessments of this world in which we live. That you'd show us the true nature of this society, this country, all that is in this age. And that we would have a true assessment of just exactly who's in control right now, who's running the show, and what his devious and twisted purposes really are, that we could be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves and prepared to face the inevitable persecution that will come our way if we are faithful to you. Show us this morning, Lord, what it means to be your disciple. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In October of 1938, there was a meeting in Munich, Germany. Present at this meeting were representatives from Italy, Great Britain, Germany, and France. At the conclusion of this meeting, in which the four powers of Europe met together to decide some of the different problems that were vexing them, the Prime Minister of Great Britain flew home, this was late in October of 1938, and as he landed, he was greeted at the airport with cheers. Londoners gathering around to welcome their prime minister home. As he made his way back to the prime minister's residential dwelling, number 10 Downing Street, there was a crowd of people gathered on the horse guards parade grounds a short distance from number 10 Downing Street in which they began to celebrate and say, yes, we have peace, we have peace. Neville Chamberlain's wife even urged him to go to the window, to the balcony, and to give some sort of word of encouragement to the folks gathered. And he threw open the window, and there before him, as all London stood cheering and praising his name, he uttered these amazing words, peace, peace in our time. And all of the crowd cheered. In the days that followed, Neville Chamberlain would also address the House of Parliament and say to them the exact same words, we have secured a lasting peace. All of Parliament rose and stood clapping and cheering wildly. There were a select few who didn't find much worth clapping for. All of those were friends of an individual named Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill himself sat while the room thundered in applause from Neville Chamberlain. And he leaned over to Sir Thomas Ory, one of his close associates in Parliament. He said, it would be worth clapping for if it were true but it is a lie. It's interesting because I think that some of us sometimes 
hear Jesus saying something that he's not. To look at many churches and to look at many Christians, you would think that something that Christ is saying to us today is along the lines of what Neville Chamberlain said 60 years ago, 60 plus years ago, peace, peace in our time. But that is not what Christ is saying. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, he says, Behold, and it's good that he should start off with this expression, this startling expression. Look, observe, pay attention. Behold, I send you out. I, Christ, am sending you out as sheep, a sheep, a lamb in the midst of wolves. That's what he is saying. And this is a startling picture. Christ, who has been described as the great shepherd, our shepherd, our loving, caring, wonderful shepherd. And then his instructions following that are totally the antithesis of what you would expect a loving shepherd to say. It is ludicrous, and no shepherd worth his salt would ever do this. The grand experiment before us is that the shepherd is conducting his sheep into the midst of wolves to challenge them. A sheep against a wolf. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but one wolf can easily subdue and overcome a thousand sheep. There is no comparison. There is no hope of survival. Sheep cannot take on a wolf. Wolves are bloodthirsty, aggressive, and violent animals. They will throw themselves into a flock of sheep. They will bite, they will claw, they will rip, and they will tear. And they will feast on sheep. It only takes one wolf to destroy an entire flock. I read an account this past week. I never worked with sheep, but I read an account this past week of a shepherd who would have to stay awake by night, tending to flocks over in Scotland. These creatures are pretty quick and pretty aggressive. They will come in the darkest hours of the night when you are least alert. They will move stealthily in packs, and before you know it, you will have lost your entire flock. Another shepherd made the statement that he had to pull all of his sheep in real close because if he were to leave them out to graze by night with such cunning, with such speed and ingenuity, wolves would come. Very skillful, very coordinated. They would infiltrate the flock and destroy them. The sheep are really pretty hopeless creatures. They're not intelligent, and they scare very easily. If you look at a sheep, and this I do know from personal experience, and just go, bah, like that, you can create a stampede. (laughs) They will run at the slightest, least startling gesture. They're easily spooked. And so as sheep try to flee from the clear and present danger of wolves, they are not very agile. They will trip and stumble over rocks and uneven terrain. They will bruise and break bones, and they will quickly make themselves an even easier target for the wolf. And yet Jesus says, I send you out, one lamb, into the midst of an army, of wolves. Doesn't sound quite like peace, peace in our times. Now does it, church? Doesn't sound like that at all. You know, as I was reflecting on the events that led up to 
the inevitable conflict known as World War II. It was fascinating to me the overwhelming drive, the overwhelming urge that uh, all of the countries on the European continent had to avoid war. You see, World War II, as it's being fought in the early 1940s to mid-1940s, uh, that generation's grandparents are still living and still have a vivid, memory, a vivid memory and can still remember the previous war that was fought. Contrary to all of the advances in modern military hardware, they had it firmly fixed in their minds in the mid to late 1930s that if they were to square off against Germany and if they were to have another European conflict, another great war similar to the war that they had in the, in the, between 1914 and 1970, that they would be fighting in the trenches, that they would be climbing over barbed wire, that they would be, in some instances, giving up as many as 30,000, 40,000 lives in a single battle to gain as little as a few dozen yards. They had it in their minds that they would be shelled and shot with gas, that they would choke and their skin would burn. They still had before them veterans from the first great war. They could still see the maimed arms and legs, the horrible scars and disfigured broken bodies. Now, what's even more fascinating, if you stop to actually look at the history records which were revealed following World War II, Czechoslovakia, France... Great Britain were all tempted to push back against Hitler. But what is even more amazing is that the general stop of the Wehrmacht, the leading generals of Germany, were also prepared as late as 1938 to arrest Hitler to take over all of the different ministries and government in which loyal Nazis were in charge and to bring their country back from the brink of war which Hitler was rushing it towards. As late as 1938, when Hitler is demanding that Czechoslovakia lay down and become a part of the German national country, you have the capacity to stop the whole thing. What is surprising is that the Allies didn't really appreciate what each other was thinking. The Czechs believed that the British would stand up for them. The French believed that the Czechs would stay true to the French. The British believed there was no hope of stopping Hitler and didn't really see what the point of maintaining Czechoslovakian national territory, what the point of that would be in the first place. The French thought that the British would never betray them and all were utterly convinced that, that Germany was completely true to its leader. Germany was not true. The British were not interested in going to war. The French didn't care about Czechoslovakia. And at the end of it all, everybody said, we don't care what happens to the rest of you so long as we ourselves are not dragged into this thing. Instead of standing together, they fractured apart. And in fracturing apart, they said, you know what? There is no way to beat Germany. There is no way to fight them off. And I am not going to give my life for a hopeless cause. 
I am not prepared to die for something that cannot be won. After all, we don't want to throw away the most precious thing we have, which is our lives. We don't want our leaders to send us into battle for something that is pointless. And so when Neville Chamberlain says, peace, peace in our times, they cheer. But as we look at the word of Jesus Christ, he says, you're a lamb. It's hopeless. There is no point in fighting, and yet nevertheless, I send you against the wolves. Stop and think about that for a second, church. The picture we have here in verse 16 tells us something about what Christ's perspective is and what our own perspective needs to be. I do not want to give that which is most precious to me for something that is hopeless, for something that is pointless. Christ says, what is most precious to you, namely your life, is not what is most precious to me, your king. Now that ought to hit us right between the eyes. You'd expect Jesus to say something like, peace, peace in our times, but he doesn't. He says, lamb against wolves. You'd also expect, if you were to look at the church today, for Jesus to say something along the lines of, be as gushy and affable and friendly as you can. Be as nice to people as you possibly can, because through befriending them, you might hopefully gain their favor, and that's how you'll ultimately lead them to faith in Christ. You'd think those would be the instructions that he would give if you were to look at the vast majority of churches today who seem to believe that the way that you lead someone to Christ is just by being their friends. And yet Christ's instructions, after having taken a very good assessment of the situation that we are sheep going up against wolves, his instructions are then, be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. You'd think Jesus was saying be friendly and affable and gushy and just love people and be their friends no matter what. And yet his instructions are, since I am sending you out as a sheep to take on wolves, you're not going to win this struggle by sheer force. You're not going to win this struggle by arguing with them. You're not going to win this struggle by getting in their faces and trying to take them on through armed physical aggression. The instructions he's giving here are instructions of a spiritual nature. When we look at the serpent, we understand that in Jewish culture, and particularly as these disciples would have heard this expression, this is a crafty, cunning animal. In other words, Jesus is saying you need to employ tact. You need to employ subterfuge. You need to be very careful in the way that you approach people. He's not telling us to be gullible or naive, and he's not telling us just to go out there and be friendly and gushy. Christ's instructions are in the same way that a snake will lay silent and quiet before he pounces, in the same way that a snake will slither and carefully position themselves, drawing the least amount of tension to themselves in order to capture their prey, in the same way that the snake, through quiet, careful cunning, will get themselves into a position to strike in that same way that he employs wisdom to take on 
his prey. You, sheep going against wolves, need to also employ that same sort of tact, that same sort of careful subterfuge. Now, don't hear him saying something that he's not saying. As Christians, we are carefully called to engage individuals with integrity and truth. He's not saying be disingenuous and employ deceit. For the very next expression is, after he says be wise as serpents, he says be innocent as doves. Again, if you were to look at most of our churches today, you would think Christ, being the king of the church, was telling folks, just be friendly, affable, and gushy. Just be lovey-dovey. And yet his instructions are clearly balanced. Doves against serpents. Which means our approach to the neighbors that we have in our neighborhoods, our approach to the friends that we have at school, our approach to our colleagues at work must be one of wisdom and discernment. And yet it must be one of integrity and truthfulness. You would think that Jesus says, reason with men, for after all, they will hear you. Be their friends. What they really need is a good friend. Yet that's not what Christ says. He says, beware of men. In the very next line of instruction, he makes a statement. He says, beware of men. They're not as reasonable as you think. They're not as kind as you would assume. They're not necessarily your friends. So as we step back and we evaluate the notion that many of us cling to, that the first step towards leading someone to Christ is that we have to be their friends, I think we probably need to hear what Christ is saying here. His assessment of the world in which you and I live is radically different than our assessment. These individuals that we want to befriend are dangerous. These individuals that we want to get close to and wrap our arms around are described as wolves with fangs. These individuals whom we are called to confront with the truth of the gospel are individuals that we should be wary of. He says, beware of men. Why? They will hand you over to courts. When you tell them the truth, when you actually are as innocent as a dove and present the real world in which we are living, a world that stands under the judgment of God, they'll hand you over to be tortured. The courts that is being referred to here are most likely the courts that are of the synagogues. All of Israel is a religious institution. And so if you are living in Israel and you are Jewish, you are accountable to the local synagogue. Now, what this is referring to is synagogue discipline. And you guys might think church discipline is rough. Wait until I tell you about what they did in the synagogues if you got caught doing something or teaching something that you weren't supposed to. See, here, if you get into trouble and you violate the scriptures, we give you like four years to reconsider it. Um... And then, if you still don't change your mind, then all that happens really is we just remove you from the church membership roster. That's not that bad. 
In this day and age, if you're caught teaching heresy or living in a way that is completely contrary to what the scriptures teach, they warn you once. Within a week's time, if you haven't made the appropriate changes, the appropriate alterations to your behavior, they'll hear it a second time, relatively quickly, and if they find that you're still guilty of the very thing which they warned you not to do, they will lash you with a whip 39 times. The rabbis taught that 40 lashes with the whip could produce death, so they don't want to kill you, so they will subtract one. 39 is a reasonable number, apparently. And if you are teaching heresy or living as though you are a heretic, they will whip you. And let's not forget the final straw. They thought Jesus was a heretic. And what did they ultimately do to him? They strung him up on a cross for what they considered to be his blasphemy. Stoning was a very present danger to the Jew who didn't tow the religious establishment's line. Jesus' instructions to his disciples are, go out and preach the truth, but be wary of men, for they will hand you over to councils. He says they will hand you over to courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues. So ultimately, if the religious establishment isn't on your side, the good news is that at least we can trust in the government. You'd expect Jesus to say, at the end of the day, if you're not getting a fair hearing in church, you know, at least try your case in a court of law. That's what you'd expect Jesus to be saying if you were to evaluate the way some of our churches operate and function these days. That's not what Christ is saying either. Not only should you be wary of men, not only should you be wary of the synagogues, but you should be wary of the government as well. He makes this statement in verse 18, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Again, if you guys were to stop and look at many, many churches today, you'd expect Jesus to say, peace, peace in our time, but he doesn't say that. You'd expect Jesus to say, be gushy, affable, and as friendly as you possibly can, but he doesn't say that. You'd expect Jesus to say, try to make these guys your friends because they can be trusted and they're friendly people, but he doesn't say that. You'd expect him to say, at the end of the day, churches are essentially all of them good places to be, but he doesn't say that. And at the end of the day, if you were to look at our churches, you'd say the final option for us is our government, and yet Jesus doesn't say that. Our assessment of our world is in complete conflict with our king's assessment of this world. Do you guys hear that? Is that hitting a nerve with you? The place in which we live is dangerous. The people which surround us have been compared to wolves. The society in which we preside, which has authority over us, has been identified as sinister, something which we shouldn't be trusting. Here's the truth. 
this world is governed by Satan. Do you hear that? Everything that you can see, everything that you can touch, every organization, including the church, that you can be a part of, lies within the realm of temptation and domination of Satan. This is something that we need to start waking up to. The whole world lies in his grasp. You say, I'm not so sure, Pastor Joshua. I don't, I don't know that I, I fully agree with that. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world, as the one who is in charge of this world. In John 12, 31, he makes the statement, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's not talking about himself, and he's about to make his way to the cross as he says that. In John 14.30, as he's continuing to warn his disciples, he says, I will no longer talk much with you. Again, he's anticipating his coming crucifixion. I will no longer talk much with you. Why? For the ruler of this world is coming, coming to kill Christ. Who do you suppose he's referring to there? He's not referring to God the Father. John 16, 11. As he's reassuring the apostles, as he's reassuring the disciples, he makes a statement, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will empower you to do everything that I've called you to do. And he goes on to describe the ministry that they're going to be involved in with the Holy Spirit. And he says the Holy Spirit will convict this world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then he elaborates upon what he means by that. And he says concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. We have three separate accounts in the Gospel of John in which Christ is emphatically clear that this world is governed by Satan. Totally and completely governed by Satan. It is under his designs. And he is in control. Paul also refers to Satan as the prince of the air, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, and again as the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4. And the latter passage mention is made of this age and this time period only, from which we conclude that there is a time coming in which Satan's ownership of this world will be overthrown totally and completely overthrown. But that time is not yet. It was a very real temptation when at the beginning of his ministry, Satan took Christ aside and offered to give him all of the kingdoms of the world. In Luke 4, 5 through 7, it says the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, that's not tempting at all 
to God if God owns all the world and if he already has possession of all the kingdoms of this world. The only way that this is a real temptation to Jesus is if Satan isn't bluffing and if he's not pulling a fast one on, on Christ, but if, in fact, he really is in control of the world. There's a shortcut here, Christ. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to break the power of sin through death. I can just give it to you right now if you will worship me. In 1 John 4, 4, Christ gives us two, the Apostle John gives us two additional passages to reinforce this idea that Satan is in control of the world. He says, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them, that is deceiving spirits, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And again, in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are not in control. And for this period in time, God has permitted Satan to be in control. Which means that our assessment of the world around us probably needs to be adjusted in light of this truth that men, churches, and other false religions, and indeed governments, lie within the power of Satan. It's not peace in our time. It is not peace in this generation. Furthermore, the whole world is holy and completely evil. Romans 3, 10 to 18 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Everyone. This is referring to everyone. Now the reason I pause here on this verse, verses 16, 17, and 18, is because Jesus says if we're following him, we're going to be like sheep who come up against wolves. We're going to get bit. We're going to get hurt. We're going to experience some degree of suffering. We can't trust necessarily any man we encounter. We can't necessarily just trust at face value any organization that claims to be a church and we certainly can't trust the government. I'm pretty sure I'm not saying anything new to you at this point with regards to the government. How many politicians have given us their word because it was politically expedient and they had no real intention of keeping it. Do you live in that world with me? 
You do, but some of you may not think that's the world you're living in. Again, to look at modern Christianity, we are sort of turning the church into a country club of sorts. A place where we come to relax and enjoy each other's friendship and company. And that's true. These are places where we come to relax and enjoy each other's company. But Christ seems to have a deeper purpose in his instructions to the apostles and us when he gives us the warning that the world we're going up against is like a wolf. We're like little sheep. You notice the last phrase. He says you're going to be brought before governors and kings and so forth and so on. Now look at this. Look at this expression. For my sake. He says that the reason we're going to be bitten, the reason we're going to be clawed, the reason we're going to be persecuted, the reason we're going to have suffering, the reason we can't trust men, we can't trust churches, we can't necessarily even trust governments, is because there is behind it all a deeper purpose. And the reason that Christ calls upon us to be willing to embrace that struggle is because he wants to show us that he is imminently worth it. Remember the generation that was living at that time in Great Britain during the 1930s did not want to give their lives away for a hopeless cause. Their lives were the most precious thing that they had. And Jesus is saying to you, the most precious thing that you have is not your life. It's him. He is not saying what you think he's saying. He's not saying peace in our time. He's not saying that his ultimate goal is for us to live in comfort and convenience and have pleasure and luxury and leisure galore as long as we live on this earth. What he's saying is, what we need to learn more than all of that is that there is something more precious, more beautiful, and more eminently pleasurable than all the luxuries of this world, all the comforts and conveniences, and it is him. And that is the testimony that we are to be bearing to the rest of the world. His statement here is, you will be doing all of these things, you will be brought through all of these hardships for his sake. Why? What's your deeper purpose in it all, Lord? Why do we suffer for all of these things? To learn the preciousness of him. And that is a testimony which cannot be ignored by them. We see here in this brief two verses the real heart of evangelism, the real means of evangelism. It isn't necessarily to make everyone that we encounter our best friend, so that being our best friend, through the pleasure of our company, as nice as that might be, we might somehow convince them that because we're such great people, so is Jesus. No, the real testimony that Christ is calling us to give is that Jesus is worthy of you worshiping him regardless of me and regardless of whether or not we're friends. In fact, I'm going to show you that Jesus is worthy of you because I will hold to him even when you terrorize me and persecute me. 
That's the principle that Christ is laying down right here. For my sake, as a testimony to them. The ESV renders it, uh, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness. That's not literally what the verse is saying. It's saying as a witness. And then the question arises, well, does Christ orchestrate these events in order that we can come before governors and kings so that we can then give a fuller explanation of what it is that we believe? And I think that if you look at the context and the verses that follow, yes, that's a part of his design. That's a part of his plan for our lives. But that's not literally what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying is when When you endure persecution, when you suffer, when the wolves tear you to shreds, if you say nothing more beyond that point, simply enduring the persecution that this world is meeting out upon you, that simple act of refusing to let go of Christ in the face of this persecution, that's the testimony. That's the witness. Before we close this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. And this verse really sums it up. I think Peter, writing 30, 40 years after Christ gave his life, really nails it on the head what Christ is saying here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 18. Peter, writing to a church that is experiencing persecution. Peter, writing to a church that is being hounded and hunted by the Roman authorities, that is being imprisoned, that is being tortured and executed. And even worse than that, a church that is being made to watch as their loved ones are persecuted and tortured. To reassure them, do you suppose he says, it's okay, guys. Just go into hiding. Just flee from it all. Look at, the re- look at the encouragement that he gives to them. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Jesus did it. We need to do it too. This needs to be your mentality. This needs to be what you think and what you believe and what you hope in. That you will be like Christ and approach this world the same way that he pro- approached the world. Four, purpose clause, here we go. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, obviously, Peter isn't saying that if we engage in evangelism and if we engage in testimony and witnessing for Christ, that we will obviously never sin again. Peter isn't saying that if you'll just go out and tell your neighbor about Jesus, you will attain spiritual perfection. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that if you will go out and willingly embrace suffering for the sake of Christ, even though we still make mistakes, even though we still sometimes engage in behavior that is sinful, at its core, the fundamental root of sin has been destroyed because there is something that you value in this life more than yourself. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you are willing to suffer for Christ, you cannot be living in sin. That is, you cannot be pursuing sin and having an ultimately lost and wicked heart anymore. Because there's something in this world that you value more 
And that's Christ. That's the testimony that we are called to bear. World War II was going to be fought no matter how many concessions, no matter how many compromises, no matter how often the British or the French governments gave in. You know, for six straight years, they gave Hitler everything he ever wanted, and at the end of the day, the man just wanted to fight. That's the world we live in. That's the Satan we struggle with. So for every compromise, for every negotiated deal, for every agreement we make with this world in the hopes that we can get along with it, just know that the bill is always going to come due. We will always, sooner or later, despite every concession offered, have to fight against the present darkness that rules this world. So you might as well stop making deals, guys. You might as well stop negotiating. You might as well stop compromising. And you might as well start standing up for Christ. Because at the end of the day, I got good news. Jesus wins. And Satan loses. And though we are all Christians and we will all ultimately go to heaven one day, we don't want to show up there looking like Neville Chamberlain, appeasers and compromisers who brokered away everything to a demon that was going to fight us no matter what. Don't be that way. There are things that are taking place in our church right now. We are preparing for the future. We're thinking about what the future holds for us as a church. Even now, as I speak, there are members of the vision committee who are actively working. They are interviewing you. They are looking at the real situation of our church, financially, personnel, and otherwise. We're trying to determine how exactly we intend to fight our corner of the world, how we are going to succeed in fulfilling the Great Commission for our generation and making provision for the many kids that are coming after us. You should be in prayer for them. And you should be diligent for those of you who are not being very prompt in terms of responding to their requests for an interview. You should clear your calendar and sit down with them and prayerfully talk with them about what the Spirit of God is saying to you in terms of how we need to proceed for the next 10, 15, 30 years. At the conclusion of all the political wrangling of the 1930s, ultimately the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, came to bomb London, despite every concession and every opportunity to negotiate. And as Winston Churchill became the prime minister, took his nation's highest office, he said to his cabinet, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toils, blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And so here we are, a young church. The average age of our church is somewhere around 12. <laughs> it's true. I'm shocked that there are so many adults in the room today. Normally, when the exodus happens, we're like 
bare minimum, like 10, 15 people. But the average age of our church is 12. On any given Sunday, we have around 70, 75 in attendance. Some Sundays when there's no soccer tournaments and people aren't traveling or it's not a holiday weekend, we have as many as 80, 85. The children outnumber us. We have almost 50 children in this place of worship every week. The vast majority of our children are nursery and jam kids, which is why when you average it all out, we're about 12 years old as a church. The future is before us. The future is now. And to the kids, we have to say, all we have to offer you is blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Even now, we are engaged in action in Cash Creek, Logan Lake, and we're in the opening moves of entering into chase and establishing a Bible study there. Not to mention the fact that we must begin preparing and planning down the road for church planting efforts to take place in Merritt, as well as Barrier, and the shoe swap. We are not going to have peace in our generation. We are in the beginning stages for the life of our church of what will be the greatest struggle not only of our lives, but in the history of the world. What is our policy, you ask? What is it that we are thinking about doing? Are we going to build a building? No, that's not our policy. Are we going to merge with another church? No, that is not our policy. Are we going to buy land in the hopes that one day we will buy a, build a church building? And I answer, no, that is not our policy. What then is our policy? In the words of Winston Churchill, I can answer it in one word. Our policy is victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be. It must be realized that without victory, there will be no survival. So regardless of what we as a church ultimately choose to do, whether it be merge, build, buy, the ultimate policy that we have is victory. As you look at your neighbors, your goal should be to share the truth of Jesus Christ with them, to confront them with the truth. In short, your goal should be to defang your neighbors, to strip the hair from their back, and to plunge the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, into their black heart in order that they might choose to become somebody totally different through the grace of God. Your goal is not to make peace with your neighbors. Your goal is that your neighbor might choose to make peace with Christ, regardless of whatever conflict and turmoil in which you engage to see that happen. And so that is our goal. Victory. I pray that that would be your goal. Let's bow for a word of prayer.